I'm very happy to be today here in Manhattan with a good friend of many years uh, and one of the most recognized executives in the world, Beth Comstock. Beth, thanks so much for thanks your time for, today. Great to be with you. Always enjoy it. So you talk sometimes about storytellers and story makers. In your career, and certainly your career at GE, you've done both. You've been involved with a company that makes everything from aircraft engines to gas turbines to financing mechanisms. And at the same time, I've spent many years as the chief marketing officer of the company, as the storyteller, to try and engage inside the company, outside the company, et cetera. Um, what is the difference, and how do these two come together, the storytellers, the story makers? Well, I, um, I like to think, um, in some ways, we all have a good story to tell, um, and we all live our lives in making the story that we tell. Um, for me, marketing was a way to connect with change, what's happening in the world. And I got really excited about the idea of having to make markets, make opportunity. So I've, to me, story making is the ability of making change happen, creating a vision, and getting a group of people who want to be part of that. They help make the vision better, real, actionable, and then together you take a set of actions and that vision becomes a story that you make real. So to me, it's that sort of deliberate act. And then storytelling, I think, is just a way of connecting with the world, our way of making sense of our place in the world. They actually go quite well together. Um, you don't necessarily have to have made the story to be able to tell it. Mm. Um, to me, uh, storytelling is in each of us. I find people often afraid to tell their story. One of the, I find that one of the scariest things you can do is to meet someone and go, hey, what's your story? Ah. They're, they're taken aback. They're by taken it, aback, yeah. but we all have one. Um, and uh, it's, it defines who we are. And then, as, as you were asking, I think to make our way, to make our story requires action. But in a, in a sense, then, telling the story actually creates it in the future because it sets an expectation or a frame, catalyzes people to have ideas to carry them forward? Yeah, I think it sets the frame. I think you're, you're creating a vision and you're con continually um, reinventing it or shaping it as the action brings, brings it forward. Um, you, you, you want it to be real. It's not just magical thinking. So right. yeah, I think story is the frame for, for making. Well, many, everybody and every company has a story, as you said. At, at a lot of organizations, the story becomes fairly specific and maybe even sclerotic. How do you take a company, that's, a company that's successful at doing whatever it's doing and start to tell a different story about where the future might go? How do you make that real? Right, well, I think um, it's, it's, it's sort of a conundrum because storytelling is at its best when you're telling, obviously, you have to, ideally, you're telling a truthful story. You're, it's mm -hmm. about your authenticity. Yet to be relevant in the world, you have to change with where the world's going and hopefully be far enough in advance that you can keep up with the pace of change. Right. So there's that tension. Mm -hmm. And I think companies often think, well, I'm this way and I'm never, you know, my story must never change. There's an right. essence of your story. So for GE, if you look at how we've told our story over 125 years, progress has always been that sort of key word or key part of it, but progress changes. It's about making change, and mm -hmm. so every time has to be somewhat relevant. Um, and there's a there's a core storytelling in GE. We're makers. We make things. So mm -hmm. that hasn't changed. Our place in the world has changed, but what we do hasn't. So I think there's a, a bit of storytelling that is making sure you know who you are and where you've come from, and then the context of telling that in where the world is going. So staying on GE for a minute, you've, you've been there for a while, 
and you've seen a whole transformation in the company, maybe a few cycles. In fact, just in the past decade, you know, we've been through six laps of Moore's Law. Yeah, yeah. Um, what have been the most impactful transitions, transformations that you've seen in your time at GE? Yeah, what's interesting, I mean, a 125-year-old company, you don't get to be that old uh, as a company without learning how to change. And for myself, I've been at the company 28 years. I, I spent mm -hmm. a big chunk of it at NBC. Mm -hmm. So you could say that's GE or not, but it was at the time. Um, I've and certainly storytellers. Storytellers, for sure. Yeah. I've come to appreciate, in some respects, having that kind of tenure allows you to connect dots and sort of pull a thread through. And I've come to appreciate that, that sort of vantage point that you can sort of see through time the narrative mm -hmm. that, that has stayed consistent. The, the biggest change that I've seen um, that has, um, prove, I guess, proven out, uh, it, one, just clean energy. The fact that clean energy and the need for clean energy was happening, that GE needed to be part of that, yeah. making that and being part of that, that future. Um, the digitization of the world is something that uh, I've seen when I first started working. I mean, there wasn't the internet. There wasn't something called Facebook. We, we actually, um, you know, called people up on the phone if we wanted to get them. We and now some people don't even like getting a phone they call. They don't like it's getting invasive. a phone call. Exactly. Yeah. So I just think uh, I think the digitization of the world is something that um, I've seen in the in the course of my career. So this digitalization also creates a level of transparency. Uh, whether that's with suppliers or customers or the public, policymakers, how has that changed business? How has that changed how we have to think about and think and act as an enterprise? Well, for one, it's just made, um, it's made data more, uh, more visible. Uh, it's made our actions more visible. It's forced us, if you want to be contemporary and, and have a, ha if you want to engage with the world, you have to be connected digitally. You have to share things. Um, and people can find it faster if you don't, so why yeah. wouldn't you? It's that kind of environment. I think what digital's done for all of us is it's just, it's, it's hastened the pace of change. Everywhere you go, I'm sure you see this everywhere you go, no matter what part of business someone's in, they're all like, it's so fast. And often what people, is just can we, can we just get through this bit of change yeah, before we'll we start the one. next? Yeah. And you can't. You hear that and, all the time. Right, so I think, yeah. the, uh, I think the transparency also makes you aware of just so many more issues happening at once. And you don't have the luxury of saying, well, we'll get to that later. So in this process, what, what's something that you envision we'll be able to do, or maybe even have to do, five or seven years from now that we can't even do today? Well, that's a good one because some of these things you can start to see now. Mm -hmm. um, I, I see uh, in the world of GE, I mean, just the ability to um, print apart mm -hmm. um, at your factory, at your service station. Um, you don't need to ship it. You don't need to, um, you don't need to have a manufacturing plant. Right. You can't do that now. I mean, you can do it in small ways right now, but I'm talking a very sophisticated, let's say, uh, right. gas turbine part. Some of those are starting to happen now, but in five to seven years, that on-demand manufacturing is going to be much more robust. And I don't think people have really internalized the magnitude of change that that will drive. Today, we have a global supply chain optimized for scale manufacturing yep. at a distance. The larger your plant, the small, the lower your costs. Right. And over the next 30 years, we'll increasingly have the opportunity to distribute these production capabilities at smaller and smaller levels 
closer and closer to the moment of demand, right. and this will rip apart the global supply chain. It will. It's going to create a huge opportunity for people who've been left out of that. So take regions of the world like Africa, potentially, mm. um, Australia, where they have a huge um, mining resource right. base and suddenly creates the shift of, uh, of resource and where, you, where, you, where things are. So I think, it, I think that is going to take shape. Look how long it's taken us in an oil-based economy to get used to distributed energy. And mm -hmm. that's at a really important inflection point. And I think the latest data I've seen on solar, it says it's, it's gone three times faster than even the most optimistic predictions had it. Yeah. So I think we, that's, that has to be factored into this. It, it, you may not see it now, it may seem like too far a leap, but it's gonna go that much faster. Right, so her, in the 1960s, Herbert Simon, uh, Nobel Prize winner predicted that computers, AI, would be equivalent to a human being by basically the early 80s. Mm -hmm. He missed that. And so people have a tendency to say, oh, this is all hype, it's going to take far longer. Yeah. But then we overestimate the near term often and then far underestimate the longer term and the impact it'll and, have. And you know, I, I think those hype cycles are important. Uh, you know, and what do you they, mean? Why are they important? Well, I think they start to get Hype us, is important. Hype can I is quote important. you? You can. I, I'm, <laughs> I come out, I like a spent part of my career in, in, in hyping things. And, yeah. and I think it's important because it's back to that storytelling. You're trying to get people to, you, you always have to be outrageous to get mm. people's attention. I am um, a phrase frequently used mm. against me in my company by my boss and others is, oh, that's just a cartoon. So I consider myself a big cartoon artist within mm. GE. And I, at first I think I was offended by it, now I've come to embrace it, um, because it, at first it is a cartoon. Yeah. At first it is silly, it's fanciful. It can't possibly be true. Or if it's true, that doesn't apply to us. Mm -hmm. And so you need cartoon artists within your organizations who are willing to hype it and, and take some of the um, harassment or uh, shame or whatever, we're, right. you know, that comes with, uh, okay, we didn't get the time right, but eventually, yeah. eventually some version of this is gonna happen. Well, that's interesting because many people have said some version, and you've quoted Einstein and others about the notion that if an idea at the beginning doesn't look ridiculous or crazy, yeah, it's probably not a very port. good idea. So um, uh, hype is important. Be outrageous. Um, so you mention often the notion of the global brain. This seems to be relevant to the discussion about transparency yeah. and data. Um, what does that mean and why is it important to business? Well, I think in a connected distributed world, which we've been talking about, meaning um, three billion people connected via the internet, pretty soon, within the next 10 years, 50 billion machines connected via the internet. Mm. Um, machines will talk to machines, machines will talk to people. Uh, hopefully we'll still talk to each other. Mm. I don't know, and we'll see where that goes in I, 10 I years. think we will be able to, but we will continue to because we desire that. We do but desire back that. Back in the 19th century when the phone was invented, and you can still find this commentary, yeah. there were people fretting that human beings would sit at home on the phone and never see each other in person again. Huh. Obviously, well, that didn't happen. Yeah. In fact, it actually increased the amount of time we spent together. Yeah, and it, it's it's another discussion, but at some point you might argue that's happening again. The more connected we are uh, virtually, the more we crave physical interaction. The more we're on airplanes. Right, right, right. and um, we go to conferences, and mm -hmm. we want to we want to learn together. So I think global brain, to 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 me, is this concept that now you can go anywhere in the world to tap into intellect. Mm -hmm. There is this layer around the earth that is this intellectual layer. Um, and it's mm. always been in pockets, but it's much more distributed. And so 
Um, some of the experiments we ran earlier were, you know, putting out challenges to the world, saying, you know, can you print this, comp this simple jet engine part, and finding a 20-year-old student in Indonesia who could do it. You need those examples to say, well, wow, where else are those ideas? Mm -hmm. We don't have all the best ideas in our company, in our head, in our team. Where do we go? And now I think we're thinking of going anywhere in the world to get an idea. And what's the interaction of how the machine helps make that data richer, gives you more insight, makes the correlations faster. So this global brain, I think, is, it's, it's not physical, but it's, it's permeable. But it's more than metaphorical. I think actually we can start hyping the notion of an intellectosphere. Ah, so that's we've good. got there we've we got go. stratosphere, onosphere, like intellectosphere. Let's trademark okay, that. Okay, all right, great. Yeah. But not we'll G, that. right? It's just it's, it's just yeah. us. Yeah, exactly. Okay, it's all right, great. Yeah. The intellectosphere. Yeah. And in fact, the, the 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 discussion I was having right before this one this morning was in uh, Slava Rubin, who founded Indiegogo, right. and the observation that he made was before crowdfunding. Uh, very few people in the world could could tap the world for funding. And now someone in Azerbaijan can throw a campaign up and receive funding from a dozen countries. Uh, that wasn't possible 10 years ago. Right. And so the same thing goes for, yeah, exactly. for internet, it's exciting. intellect. So when everything becomes connected and visible like you've been talking about, what we have this kind of transparency or even hyper-transparency, good and bad. Um, what can we do we couldn't have done before? Well, it's interesting. One, I think you have hyper-transparency, but I also think people seeking more opportunity to get offline for, you know, the sort of trend, mm. counter-trend. So in a hyper-transparent world, I think you're going to find more value in those places that are truly closed, that are truly not permeable. Um, like, like what? Well, I, I think we're starting to, you know, people are, are looking for more, um, they're going off the grid, they don't want to be connected, they don't want digital messages. No. I think you're seeing that. I think uh, as we look at technology like blockchain mm -hmm. uh, and hyper ledgers, this idea of you, you have a ledger. Of people are starting to yeah. say, well, you know, it's c competitively. I, I, if I'm a business, I don't want everybody to see every transaction. My competitors can take advantage right. as I can. So I think you're going to start to see some of those counter trends happening. It's interesting you bring up counter trends. I've, I've, I've thought for a long time that many of the visions of the future we see in science fiction, et cetera, and films with the blinking lights yeah. and the technological edge to them is actually not what the future will look like because we will desire a sense of authenticity, even if it's invented authenticity, a sense of natural form, a sense of connection. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how this changes actually our living experience yeah, as yeah, well. Yeah, it will be interesting. So as the world changes, as GE changes, we also change individually as human beings. What have you learned, and you've done this a number of times in your life, what have you learned about reinventing yourself, your place in the world? What, how does that work? Well, I, um, I've learned a lot from being in one company, um, and I, uh, I found GE to be this incredible laboratory for change. You don't stay alive unless you learn how to change. Right. I think that's true for people as well. I think they're, if you're in tune with the world, if you're constantly discovering where new ideas are coming from, what's next, you're, you're able to, to be adaptable. And I, I think there's, some, there's a, a real tension in that because reinventing yourself doesn't necessarily mean totally changing who you are. Yeah. There's a core essence we all have, our uniqueness in the world. In marketing, it's our unique value proposition. I mean, you, you need to hang on to that for time. But, but I want to digress on that for a second yeah. because you probably get this question from people. I certainly do from students yeah. and alumni and other people 
entrepreneurs. How do you find that essence? I mean, it's something that you usually don't know when you're 20 years old. How do you discover what is truly your essence? Well, it is hard to know at 20. In some ways, I feel like you know I, I'm still, still figuring know, right? out what, what <laughs> is my essence. And so in some ways, you find your essence in how you interact with others. You're, yeah. you're seeing what people respond to, what, what they value in you, what they keep coming back to you for time and time again. What, what gives you meaning? What do you like? I mean, you know, your value may be something you don't like, but what's the point in that? Um, so I think it's a, it's a bit of a exploration to, to figure out what, what your unique meaning is. And then how do you reinvent yourself? You take that meaning and can make it relevant in the world. Um, for me, I'm somebody who loves change. I love, um, I love what's next, what's new. That's my, my story, my mission. It's, it's allowed me to be on the edge of where things are happening and then try to bring that back and translate it back into a, to a company. But I can't just go like, hey, blockchain's happening, GE, get with it. I have to translate. I have to make it relevant right. for that situation. So I think part of reinvention is understanding how to, how to make yourself relevant in the world. And figuring out where in the world to be relevant. I mean, it's an interesting, it's an interesting uh, dichotomy, the notion of being all about change, which you definitely are, and loving it, and, but then also selecting to be within an enterprise that's been around for, for over a 100 time. years. Yeah. It's not obvious. It's not obvious. Because you right. could have gone off to Silicon Valley and said, I'm going to invent companies and see what happens. But you said, I'm going to see what's going on in the world and translate it back into my organization. Yeah. So what does this say about... It says something about how leadership needs to change today and going forward. What's, what's, what's different about leadership today than, say, when you started your career? Well, I mean, leadership has changed so much. I think when I started my career, it was definitely, you know, tops down, command and control, um, very hierarchical. Um, you know, somebody said do it, largely people went and did it. Yeah. Um, today, leadership is much more about vision, a strategy, Discovery, you know, sort of set, being open, um, uh, allowing, creating a framework with which people can do their work. Um, it's, and that's the story again. That is the story again. I think leadership is about uh, trust and permission. Um, if you're if you're if you're at work and you're waiting for someone to give you permission, mm -hmm. you're waiting. And companies don't have time for people to sit around and wait for someone to tell them it's okay. So leadership today, I talk a lot about. I've been fascinated by this concept of emergence as a science mm -hmm. concept, and, and I, I came to it just because of sort of studying change within GE, and right. I kept hearing people saying, like, there's so much, I'm so surprised by change, we didn't see it coming, yet it was always emerging, right? Mm -hmm. there, there, and so you're, I, I have to say to people I work with, we have to get used to the in-between. We're, right. we're not giving up the old totally, and we're not totally at the new yet. So this, this idea of emergence really resonated with me as a way to describe it, meaning a lot of things are popping up at once, and you have to get used to you're not either or in some cases. So for, for us right now, we're on a journey to be a digital industrial. Right. It means digital meets physical. We grew up in a physical world. Now we have to be digital. Are we digital? Are we physical? we got to be both. Mm -hmm. And people want to say, no, I, I only want to do one. You can't. Right. So I think that is really where leadership is sort of saying there's a vision. We're going to have to get used to ambiguity. We're going to have to test different ways forward. We're going to have to plan for different potential future outcomes. Mm -hmm. um, we have to unlearn some of the ways we did before. And probably the most important thing I think for leadership today is creating the right kind of feedback loops. 
earlier, quicker, uh, on a personal level, on a team level. So you know if, if you've given someone the agency to go do it, you have earlier feedback loops to know if it's working. So you don't have to wait five years to find out that was a bad Course idea. correct, et cetera. Right. I, I often take issue when people say, boy, we didn't see that coming. Unless it's something like initial coin offerings, yeah. you know, yeah. with blockchain and, and tokenization. Most people probably didn't see that coming, but yeah. but most things. Look, uh, when IBM in 1999 finally decided to get into the internet, the public internet, yeah. it had been around for six years or so since the web launched. It was. We all know they had strategy offsites at IBM. They had slide decks. They had people wringing their hands yeah. about the internet. They saw it and they saw it coming and they saw it growing, but they didn't do what they needed to do to make it happen, yeah. to make IBM relevant. How do you help people who have to hit their quarterly numbers now, and they do have to, yeah. take the time to look further out and then, tr as you said before, translate that into a portfolio of options on the future? Because we're always going to be more successful for right now if we focus all of our energy on right now, except that then we don't have a future. How do you do that? Well, I think it starts with good leadership that realizes their job is to not only optimize today, but build tomorrow. You have to do both, and leaders have to see that. They have to create the space, the courage for tomorrow. They have to make room for people like me, who, who that's the world we live in. I think one of the, the, great thing, the great injustices in companies is they don't make room for people yeah. who actually see things seed things. Um, there are people in the, in, in the world, they don't just all go to startups. They actually like starting and growing things. They don't want to live at scale. They like going from nothing to something. Yep. And we tend to think they, there's no room for those people in our company. And you have to make room for them. And so I think that's what it's about in companies today. And leaders have to realize they're going to take some grief from investors. Investors have to be a partner in that. I mean, I, I think investors' metrics often are backward-looking. They're lagging. They're yep. not forward-looking. They're all lagging They're, indicators. Profitability, revenues, that tells you what happened last week, not what's going to happen so next year. So I think year. they need to hold, a, hold us to a standard that says, okay, how are you optimizing today? And I want a much more deeper dive transparency on what is the viable, what are the viable paths? Right. What, how many ideas are you testing? How efficient are you in testing those ideas? You know, there's, there's actually a lot of efficiency that that can come about. I mean, we, we've adopted Lean Startup. We call it FastWorks. We've done a lot of different things, but most of that is about testing and learning your way forward. And I would think investors would want more of that. It's 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 efficient. It prepares you for the future. So those would be some of the things. So you you talk a lot, and you have mentioned them today about creativity and about critical thinking yeah. and, and envisioning the future. Ethics in a context of fast change, where we can do things that we could never have done before becomes increasingly important. What is, what is the role and the responsibility of a corporation like GE to think about, for instance, the application of Internet of Things, uh, tracking assets, tracking people, um, genetic engineering, CRISPR, with, you have a healthcare business, yeah. for instance. These will happen, and they are happening. So what is the responsibility of a corporation to navigate that? Yeah, well, I think it's all part of being able to see the future, make room for the future in your organization. That Part of that is that critical thinking. I, I, I actually could go on a rant if you want me to. I won't. Please, but I could, that's what we're here just for. The, this, the, the loss <laughs> of critical thinking, uh, certainly in the world, but it, it's affecting business. I, I think that ability to, while the world's going so fast, you know, I, yes, we have to respond immediately, but some, some responses 
require thought yeah. and they require um, sort of a red team, blue team approach, this or that. And for now, we are going to take this step until we get new evidence that tells us we're going to change our path. Internet of Things, um, all of the different scenarios. There, there are a lot of scary scenarios. Right. Are you planning for them or are you going to wait till they happen? Surely you're not going to know every black swan or whatever. For you. You're not going to know every, but you at least need to game it. You at least need to have had the thought uh, I think we're seeing it in companies that over the past decade, we've seen it in our carbon and, and uh, emissions footprint in the world. I think yeah. that was, I think, a good early step in that kind of way of thinking ethically and thinking ahead to mm -hmm. the consequences of our actions. Yeah, and actually on that topic, one of the things that, that we've seen that has worked and worked in the very beginning of that effort to look at sustainability, et cetera, at the point where it transitioned from just being some people that everyone wrote off about, you know, hugging trees yeah. and all this, when people started to recognize in some cases I can save money, I can actually be more efficient by becoming sustainable, that, that was the turning point. Yeah. For instance, when Walmart got into it, think what you want about Walmart, they were one of the biggest catalysts for driving Definitely. sustainability in the world yeah. because it's going to make us more efficient. And that starts to, to shift people's Yeah, well, people's I mean, we, when we first got into eco-imagination, for us it was about being ecological and economical, right. to your point. But you had to say there's, we're a part of this. That, that we, let's think that forward. Yeah. Let's imagine what happens if we don't change the way we work, if we don't change what we do. So I do think there is a think forward kind of process that is ethics. I, I mean, we think of ethics, we tend to think in companies that it's, it's purely about um, you know, integrity relating to cheating, um, lying. I mean, those are bad things. Right, right. But we don't think about the unintended consequences of some of our technology, of what happens when it starts to interact in the world. I think in a world of driverless car, you're hearing more of this starting to starting to come about. But right. I think it's going to be far more pervasive. I I hope we see the return of a corporate ethicist. Uh, I think philosophers and boards of advisors that include people who can help steer a company through critical thinking. I think there's a, a really interesting path for that kind of capability. A hopeful sign is that the public ethical dialogue in history does seem to percolate when there is a transformative technology that comes on the scene. So for instance, nuclear weapons would be an obvious example. Um, but, but there are others, even in the 20s and 30s with quantum mechanics, which the scientists were still trying to figure out that started to become a discussion in some public realms. So someone I have great respect for, Alfred North Whitehead, a philosopher of science and many other things, he said in Science in the Modern World, society advances by the number of things we can do without thinking. And this was in the 20s and 30s when he was saying this. This is before we really had robots. This is before we had anything like AI. But that's the question we're facing today, 100 Definitely. years later. So um, that dialogue was happening at the time and when it wasn't even as present as it is today. And the dialogues, the, the, the realities that companies are facing, like what do we do with thousands of actuaries in the world when in the next five to seven years AI will do that better? And that's a heck of a white collar job. So, um, so Beth, do you see some of this happening, more of this happening with colleagues in, in other companies in the corporate sphere? If not, how do we catalyze it? No, it sure is. I mean, as I hear you talking, a couple of things. I mean, you're, you're talking about the ability to go faster um, right. and not have to think as much. But now we have to go fast and think more. And I think in some respects, Great. for companies like GE, I mean, 
at our core, we like to make things, but we love scale. We dream in scale. And so the ability to get to scale fast is your, has been a competitive advantage for big companies. Now you have to stop and say, wait a minute, we have to use judgment. And you need more people to have critical thinking skills. Just don't go do it the same way we've always done it. So I think that's really a tension in companies right now. Uh, we're seeing it with artificial intelligence. You see it with robotics. That's why I'm so passionate about getting more creativity into companies and you know, trying to get people over their fear of imagination, if you will, because we need to imagine different scenarios. What I've found in some of the colleagues I work with, where you start to introduce algorithmic robots. I mean, think of a group, I, I'm thinking of a group right now that has a, a back office function. They're maybe doing accounts payable, and you know, it's, it's, it's a very tedious job. But right. they've, there's one team I know that, that started to realize if I could work with my IT leader and get an a, a algorithmic robot to go and sort all this stuff overnight, when I come in the next day, the data is all much better and I can use my brain and think much more clearly about what we need to do rather than just keep doing the same thing the same way. So that was a big insight to say, it's about reinventing the process. Let's rethink the process, let's not try to do the old process faster. So I think we're gonna see a lot of that where, where critical thinking needs to stop and we need critical thinkers to stop and say, why are we doing this? Right. What's the outcome of this? Then maybe we should start to do it faster and at scale. So I want to come back to artificial intelligence in a second and ask you, what do you think business leaders and perhaps policymakers need to know about artificial intelligence that perhaps they don't? But on your last point, I, I had an article in Forbes a couple months ago that speed is not a strategy. One of the things that I'm sure you're you're seeing as well is everybody's gotten excited about lean startup yeah. and, and you have, have, have FastWorks, yep. which has yep. been extraordinary yes. with some real output. It's lean only faster. Exactly, but adapted <laughs> yeah. for GE, yeah. adapted exactly. for that kind of context. But sometimes it can go too far and people start saying, well, let, let's be like startups. Let's just go out and do stuff yeah. and see what happens. That's not a strategy. You still need that story. You still need that frame so that people know within that, this is the direction the company's yeah, going. Yeah, for, for me, the idea of going faster is you're testing your ideas faster yeah. so that by the time you're ready to scale something, you have a degree of confidence. So what's going faster is the risk evaluation and the ability to have multiple ideas being tested at once before you then decide to scale. So rather than doing five things big, let's do five things small and then figure out what are the one or two things we're gonna go big in. And hence the, hence the need for critical thinking, which is critical design, critical assessment, et cetera. But I wanna challenge you for a moment on this notion of critical thinking. Do you think it's really changed? Do you think we have less of it today than we did 30 years ago? In the world, I, probably not. But I think in, I think in companies at scale, we have gotten so used to following the checklist, the process. I'll give you a great example. Uh, this is more, uh, I, I travel a ton, as you do. I was in the airport at SFO, San Francisco, a couple uh, last year, and the pilot, we were delayed. The pilot comes out in the, in the gate and says, great news, I've been cleared to fly. Uh, the autopilot isn't working, but I am so experienced that the FAA has granted me permission to fly us home and I can't wait. I love flying not on autopilot. And to me, that's a metaphor for what we're talking about a little bit. We, what did that say to you? Because you could either be excited or scared. Well, I was excited <laughs> once he said, because I have the experience and the judgment in my, as how I interpreted it, right. to know what to do. I'm not, I, I don't need just the 
machine part of it to tell me what to do. And in those moments of importance, you want someone to know how to listen to the feedback and say, this is the right thing, this is the wrong thing. Right. Um, so I think, I think in too many companies at scale, we just keep trying to make the same process better the same process faster. We aren't saying, is this the right process for what we need to do? And I'm just, I, I see it every day. So we shouldn't be replacing thinking with process, it, right. which often we have done in the past. We have done. I think it, as in our rush to get scale often, we, we give up some critical thinking. Now, it can't slow you down to the point you can't compete. Right. Right. Um, and that's why I think you need to make room for, for that kind of, both to optimize today and build tomorrow in your, in your organization so that as you start to get more confident, you've de-risked some of these ideas earlier, you're more confident in scaling in them. So autopilot is a good transition back to artificial yeah. intelligence. Well, this is affecting all of us personally, professionally. What's something about artificial intelligence that you think we need to have more conversations about or maybe business policymakers aren't aware of? Well, I think one of the things that we often forget is that uh, humans are um, coding and writing the algorithms and the software that creates the artificial For intelligence. Now. For now. I, I think it's much farther out the, the kind of um, you know, humanity-eating AI that everybody is fearful of that makes great movies is much farther out than we think. There's yeah. some parts of artificial intelligence that are happening today, and I've seen it. it. It frees you up. It frees your brain up from having to do the manual thinking, right. the repetitive thinking. It allows you to be creative. I sometimes worry in companies that people actually don't want to be more imaginative, more creative. They fear it. And so it's easier to just keep doing the work the way you've done it, as opposed to have somebody else make your work better so that you can be freed up to solve bigger problems. Yeah, I, It's funny you say that I often think of AI as the evolution of our own cognitive systems from the medulla oblongata to the cerebellum. We don't think about breathing. We don't think about our heart beating, thank God. We think about other things because that's all taken care of. Right. And removing removing the capability line up further and further up to the cognitive, creative, et cetera, experiences that we could have in the future. Yeah, I think a good test for a, a team is to, so with some of the um, AI applications you can find today, a chatbot, a, a algorithmic robot that can do numbers better, it's a good yeah. test of a team to figure out who on the team wants to step up and be more creative. How do you set that test up? I remember maybe five years ago when 3D printing was just percolating, you. You and your team bought 200, a couple thousand, a couple thousand 3D printing machines and sent them out across GE and said, "Tell us what you find." Right, and it was it was a good test because it were, there were people that were like, "This is a toy." Back to the right. cartoon artist, "This yeah. is a toy." You gave us a kid's toy. I mean, what am I going to make a keychain for yeah. for my kid? Um, then there were the the few of them that were like, "This is stupid. I'm not even touching it." Um, you made me a metal desk ornament that I still have on it, my desk. Those are amazing, aren't yeah, they? And yeah. the, the intricacy. And then there was this group that were like, wow, this, you know what this can do? This can give us little tools that we can start to prototype and take to our customers earlier. So we don't need to wait for this to be perfect. We can right. actually print something out. And I can take it over. If I'm an engineer, I can take it over to the product team and say, imagine if these two things did this. Would that be a different way of solving that problem? So the people who actually use it as a discovery tool, 
it unlocked all kinds of new ways of doing. I mean, we now have an additive manufacturing division. It's mm -hmm. creating the future, and that's the way the teams work. They've, they've created all these streams for people to just bubble up ideas for discovery. So that's what that seeds. And so you can you can actually do a test without people knowing it. You can you can throw cool stuff out in the company and see who picks it up. You can exactly. And I my rule my rule of thumb has been kind of a third, a third, a third. There's a third of the people that are just never going to adopt it. Mm. There's a third that they just need proof. So mm. they're going to want. And then there's that third that just can't wait to discover. Can we ever have a two thirds company? Where well, we get rid of that one third and never have that one well, third. I think you probably. <laughs> I, I think that's back to reinventing yourself as a person yeah. and being somewhat open to what's new and what's next. And and if if you're fearful of that, maybe you should ask yourself, what can I do to be a bit more open? So how do you get people over the fear of creativity, over the fear of the future, to the extent there is, and, t and turn them into people who are excited about making it happen? Well, it starts with a good a vision and a story. So what's possible in our context? Um, and, and repeating that, repeating it, bathing in it, just getting it totally, uh, getting people totally immersed in the story so that they can see a way to contribute to the story. So I think that's a big, that's a big part of it. And then you have to have small acts um, that, that make it real. Um, people need to, back to our 3D printer example, I need to actually print something out and say, hey, I see how this works. I understand this. So I think there's a lot of exposure it's best done with teams, yeah. taking teams together. I, what I've learned in my career, I wish I had known this earlier, is you know, I always played a role of I'm going to go seek and find, and I come back like uh, an explorer from another land. And people are like, uh, that's a nice right. story. You're like Marco Polo. They right. throw him in jail because they think this guy's nuts. Well, or they just it's like yeah. boring, or it's like I, don't, I didn't uh. see that. I, I've learned that so much of change and being ready for what's new and next is that people have to discover it for themselves. You right. can't tell them. You mm -hmm. can't teach them. I think learning in companies, maybe it's you'd know best, but in, what I've learned about learning in companies is it's people experiencing the new together. Mm -hmm. So I, I'd like to shift to a topic that's important to all of us. It's something that you've talked about a lot, and certainly the stories that you tell, you mention authenticity. I translate that to trust. The issue of trust today, this is a tough one. So Richard Edelman from Edelman and I were talking uh, last month about the Edelman Trust Barometer and how trust in, in all uh, public institutions, including businesses, has declined uh, precipitously. What can we do as business and academic leaders to, to change that, to renew trust in business, for instance? Yeah, well, when I hear that, I think of what I said earlier, that idea of get used to living in the in-between, because what's happened is our old institutions are changing, and the new model of them is not clear yet. And so we're anxious. And I think for, for politicians, business leaders, people leading these institutions, if you can't paint a picture of what the future is going to look like, how can you expect anyone to believe that they're going, you're going to be there for them? And so I think it is a lot of storytelling, um, a lot of being transparent about when things don't work, when things are in process of being changed, of inviting people in to help you make it better. Um, too often we think we have to do that in cloak and dagger and you can't let people know about the change and you bring it out and say here and is it any surprise they don't know what you're talking about? Right. So that's how I think trust is, it's about sort of a reality check of where we are, reminding people that there's a vision and let's, let's do it together. So I think that's a lot of what's happening to organizations is they keep people out, they don't have the vision and, um, and they seemingly don't want to change. 
Yeah. One of the answers that Richard had, Richard Edelman had, which I thought was interesting, he said we all have to become media companies, mm. whether that's GE or Edelman, which is a media company, yeah. or Rob Walcott or Beth Comstock. And, and that's something actually you, you've imbued at GE over the past decade at least about the meaning of media and communication and storytelling as a result of building trust. So Beth, we're writing your story years from now. What would you like people to know about Beth Comstock? Uh, I, I think I, what I'd love them to know is that um, I uh, committed myself to work with meaning, to working in, with a team of people who could imagine what was next and work really hard to try to make it happen. But really, it's hard to believe this, but it's true when you're there. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of ups and downs. Um, it's not measured by the success. It's measured by how well you navigate it. And for that, I'd, I'd hope that is what I could, I could tell. But you know, we learn when we face challenges. I, I know it's true for myself. Yeah. There actually is research that suggests this. When everything's going great, we don't deeply learn. When the chips are down and we have to try and rise to the occasion, whether we succeed or not, seems to be when we're really learning something. Yeah. Um, looking back at the challenges that you've faced, what has been the most meaningful thing that you've learned through all that? The most meaningful thing I've learned as I look back at those challenges is just that um, you have to be open. You have to, um, the more open you are to what's new, what's next, the more able you are to navigate the change. Um, you have to work with others. It's really important. I mean, it sounds so basic, but I think of my best moments when I've been happiest at work is in the flow. And it's not in the flow of my own ideas, it's in the flow with others. It's mm -hmm. a riff, one giving to the other. We're up at our whiteboard, we're like, we're, 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 we're creating the future together. And I think that's, that's so much of what work is about. It's, it's about those kind of uh, flow moments together. So uh, a last couple of questions, Beth. Uh, I have two daughters, Sage and Jolie, eight and six years old. Uh, you're the sort of woman that I would love for them to aspire to be. I mean, open, as you said, um, accomplished, um, but in a, in grounded grounded. What advice would you give to Sage and Jolie as they begin their lives? Yeah, well, thank you. I have two daughters, not, not that young. They've grown How up. How old are they? They're in their 20s. Oh, wow. Congratulations. Um, so they're, they're grown, and I'm very proud of them. And you, the, You've been through the Valley of Death, exactly. which is called high school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. And um, every stage is great, but every stage is challenging with them. But I um, <laughs> I mean, what I love about my daughters is that they're they're very independent. They they know who they are. So, mm -hmm. for uh, for your daughters, I'd say um, you know know who you are, know what your strengths are, and just you you can you can make your way, right? I mean, you can do this. I think that I grew up in a small town in Virginia. I've mm -hmm. I've worked with a company that's allowed me to see change and see the world in a way I never thought possible. You can do this. I think that's really what I'd say to your daughters. You can do this. You can do this. Okay, so what advice do you have for me? <laughs> you can do this. You are doing this. <laughs> I think this idea of, uh, of discovery and, and learning and taking that to the next realm for what people need to do, I think you can be a really powerful force for that. I mean, you've had learning right. as a construct for, for how you've, how, what you've done. I mean, think of the innovation network that you've put together. It's really, I, as I've known it, it's been about a curated, shared learning experience. That's why people come back. They like each other, but they've learned something and they are hunger for more. So I think you can do more of that in the world. Great. Um, last question. Three words to describe how you feel about the future. Hyphens are acceptable. 
three words to describe how you feel about the future? Um, anxiously optimistic. Oh, okay, well, that's two. <laughs> you, I give you points for being succinct. I'm a warrior. Um, I'm optimistic, but I'm also a warrior. Uh, how does that impact you as a leader, as a business person, as a human being? The optimism or the worrying part? Both. I think the optimism allows me to just think that the, of the positive impact of, of things. The worrying, the worrying side means I'm always prepared. I was a good Girl Scout. I'm always ready. I think through every scenario. I've thought of every, I, hope, I haven't thought of every, but I, I've thought of many possible scenarios. So I sort of channel that worry and anxiety in a way to think about the future. Great. Go fast and think more. Hype is important and be outrageous. We dream and scale, but we also sometimes fear imagination. Get used to living in the in-between because that's where we all live. In life, we make the story we tell. We tell the stories we make. Thanks for sharing your story with Thanks, us. Thanks, Rob. Great, great experience. Thanks a lot. I great. love the way you summarized that. Thank Thanks. you. Thank you. Thanks.